Welcome to Embrace Your Brain with Dr. D. Joy Coulter. These short weekly brain bits give you fresh glimpses into how your mind works and how to develop its natural brilliance. Welcome to the podcast. We've been looking at what it's like to be sequestered with two-year-olds and then three-year-olds, and today we're going to look at what it's like to be sequestered with four-year-olds. And in fact, we're going to look at what it would be like to be learning from four-year-olds. So if the hallmark of two was discovering no and giving us fits around that, and the hallmark of three was kind of what that, which means what's that called, and we're running around naming the universe with them, there's something about four that links to why. But you know, they're not asking like a seven or eight-year-old would be why something happens, and you can get caught up as a grown-up explaining these elaborate cause-and-effect answers to why, why, why. But you know, if you simply quit that and say something interesting about the topic, they'll be quite happy with that too, because they're not exactly asking for cause-and-effect. They're just saying, say some more about this, okay? And they've noticed that if they say why, grown-ups really get going on it. It's just that they've encountered something that puzzled them. Picasso really admired the child's mind very much and said, it takes a very long time to become young. It took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. So let's take a look at the trait he admired so much and find our way back to it again, because four is the zenith of that. There's a natural sense of aesthetics and of the patterns that surround us that the four-year-old picks up very easily. If we long to increase our creativity and our intuition, we need to experience the world through our four-year-old senses again. First, we have to learn to see what doesn't make sense again, what is puzzling, because we tend to see what we expect to see. You know the experiment they did where they had somebody dressed in a gorilla uniform running along the field in a football game at the halftime And then they asked people in the crowd, did they notice the gorilla? And they said, of course not, there's no gorilla. And when they played the footage back and they could see that there was a gorilla there, they were dumbfounded. But it wasn't something they expected, and therefore they didn't see it. So somehow we have to reclaim this ability to see what puzzles us, to see what doesn't make sense. The young child could never learn about the universe if all they saw was what they already expected to see. So if we cultivate the practice of having more questions and less answers, that's going to help. So now let's look at some of the things these kids are noticing. At three, it was objects and events of their everyday life. They wanted the name for trucks and cookies and trees and birds and the people in their lives. But at four, it begins to include items like this. Echoes, rainbows, a tone of voice whether a particular dog is friendly or not. What's on our minds? Things we haven't even said out loud. Perhaps lights around people, or sensing who might be sick. They might draw a picture of a person and show potatoes in their tummy, because they're pretty sure that's what they had just eaten. And maybe they even have special names for little creatures that we can't see at all. So what's happening? Is this all just their imagination? Certainly four is the foundation year for creative imagination. 
And if they tell us about these things, especially the things that we don't see or hear or pick up on at all, of course we're likely to chalk it up to make-believe and to their imagination. Those potatoes in the person's tummy? Children's art specialists will call that failed realism, never once checking to see if the person maybe really did eat potatoes that day. At our ordinary faster brain speed, it makes no sense to wonder if any of it could be real. But if we slow way down to their speed, we can pick up on some of it. After all, it's just that they're picking up on waves as well as objects. Sound waves, light waves, even the felt sense or vibes of the mind or body of another person. We still may not get it all, though. I'll have to tell you a Scotty story. When he was four, we were gardening. And I'd read about Findhorn and seeing angels and elementals of all sorts. So I asked him if he saw any creatures. No, he said. You don't? Don't you see any critters? Critters? Oh, yeah. Well, do you see them now? And he squinted his eyes kind of funny. He said, yeah. There were some on the roof, under a tree, by the flowers. I told him I couldn't see them. So he tried to help me. And finally, one day, he said, Come here, Mom. I think I finally see one you can see. He was hunkered down under a great big pine tree. And I looked, and I squinted my eyes, and I blurred my eyes, and I did everything I could imagine to see anything under that tree. And finally, I had to say, You know, Scotty, I just can't see it. Well, Mom, he said, That's just how it is then. Grown-ups, they see out visible things. But kids, they can see out visible and invisible. We're going to find, though, that this skill fades over time, and by the age of seven, they often tend to drop it entirely. There's another key trait that shows up during that fourth year. All this sensing and imagining is affecting the way they talk to themselves, and the area that does this inner talking or inner speech gets stronger and stronger until it can finally override the other role that those very same cells have had. They have been operating as a motor response area. Let me see that was linked to reaching out to touch it. Hearing a clapping game was linked to going through the right motions. Finally, speech can be the boss of those muscles. Those cells actually change their function. Instead of firing as a motor response to what the child is hearing and seeing, those cells begin to connect hearing and seeing to a mental response. So now... Seeing and hearing trigger self-talk, and that self-talk becomes strong enough to finally interrupt the motor activity. This means they now have brakes, and we call that impulse control. Now, if we say, don't do something, or don't go somewhere, they can actually obey. This newfound self-control gets tested in many ways as we grow older. In fact, the first test comes about six months later when, as a five-year-old, children find themselves getting overpowered by rhythm. We'll talk about this next time when we explore how it is to be five. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I think you'll love my book, Original Mind, Uncovering Your Natural Brilliance. It's available on Amazon and at EmbraceYourBrain.com.